This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Find out more at the conclusion of today's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I am pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I am joined as always by my friend Carl Truman, who is a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Carl, good to see you. How's everything going in Western Pennsylvania and throughout the world where you are traveling uh, uh, because of the, the demand for people to hear your bits of wisdom. How's that well, going for you? You know from reading the Twitter commentary on me, Todd, that wherever <laughs> I go, I spread sweetness and light. And right. everybody's life is is a little bit happier and a little bit richer <laughs> having had an encounter with me. So That's yeah, I'm, it's a burden to bring so much joy to so mm -hmm. many people all the time. But you know, with God's grace, I'm I'm You're pursuing to the it. calling to the best of my my ability. That is that is good to know. The accent, and the accent certainly helps. I put it oh, well, sure. The accent certainly helps. It, it most certainly does. It most certainly does. Well, <laughs> Carl, um, I want to uh, I, I want us to talk about something today, and I'm going to appeal specifically um, to some of the work you've been really focusing on in, in recent years. Um, this is an issue that we've talked about before. We've talked, and what we're going to talk about is is specifically some controversies within the PCA, but also some of the broader issues that are at stake here, namely issues surrounding um, the controversy with Revoice, but also um, more specifically um, controversies dealing with the idea of identity. And what I mean by that is this, um, those who are in opposition to some recent um, efforts in the PCA to draw a line at the theology of revoice, um, side B, gay Christianity, to draw a line and say, no, we're not going to let that in. Those who've opposed those efforts to stop that um, appeal in part to um, their opposition to the language and the categories of identity as being something that is extra biblical, um, opaque too unclear to really understand. And specifically, and this is an issue that we talked about, you and I talked about a couple months ago, and then I spoke with Fred Greco recently about the two kind of key overtures that were passed at General Assembly this summer in St. Louis, overtures 23 and 37. You know, those numbers are emblazoned on our minds now. And what they seek to do is um, add language to the book of church order regarding the character of those who serve in sacred office. That's overture 23. And then regarding how we are to examine how presbyteries and sessions are to examine candidates who come before them, candidates for sacred office. That's overture 37. And overture 37 is a little longer than overture 23. And it deals 
among other things, with um, issues related to identity. How does how does this candidate coming before the session or before the presbytery? How does he conceive of himself in terms of sin? Does he think of himself or talk about himself as a gay Christian or same-sex attracted Christian or any other kind of you know fill-in-the-blank type of Christian? And Overture 37 and 23 really seek to draw a line to say, if you're going to serve in sacred office, you can't so identify with your sin that it becomes kind of a moniker for you, a marker of your identity. Well, because the language and the category of identity is used, particularly in Overture 37, some of the opponents, and this was a, this is a more recent thing, some of the opponents are saying, you know what, um, but that word identity is wholly unhelpful. Um, it's not a helpful category. It's not a helpful word because no one knows what it means. And strangely enough, Carl, recently Tim Keller um, tweeted out tweeted out his opposition to overtures twenty three and thirty seven on the basis that the language of identity is too to use his word too opaque, and we just don't know what it's going to mean from from one day to to the next. Now that was strange, Carl, because. Tim Keller was one of the authors of the PCA's study committee report, which was commissioned at General Assembly 2019. He was one of the authors of that study committee report, which is excellent, by the way. And it uses the word identity from my last count, I think a couple of dozen times and and the concept even even more. In fact, there's a whole section of the of the affirmations. One of their affirmations deals specifically with identity. And what is appropriate for Christians in terms of how they think about themselves? And another one of the um, uh, uh, affirmations deals with language. In other words, how are we going to name ourselves? Um, and so it was very strange for me to see him just recently tweet out, you know what? We shouldn't be, you know, and, and one of the things he said was, we need a major study before we start using the word identity. And I thought, brother, you just participated in a major study. <laughs> That yeah. uses the word and the concept of identity repeatedly, and so I'm thinking, what gives on this? So, Carl, yeah. you've you're a historian, and a lot of your energy in in the last several years has been really focused on issues related to how how we conceive of ourselves. You know, the meaning of humanity, the meaning of human identity. And the history of those ideas related to how we think about our identity. And so my que- I've got a couple questions for you. One is, is the concept of identity too opaque to have a meaningful conversation about it? Well, no. And I, I think one of the <laughs> yes, yeah, one of one of my immediate responses to that is I always get very suspicious when people start to try to make something very complicated which may not be entirely simple, but isn't rocket science. Right. Now, it might be the case to say that throughout history, you know, if, if you want to do a word search throughout history and say, well, how have people conceived of the notion of identity? Really, I, you, you're going to find discussions of identity emerging relatively recently in yes. history, when we become aware of other cultures, for example, right. or more significantly, when we've had this, this inward move from the the 16th, 17th century, where our our inner psychology has Mm. become increasingly important for who we are, as opposed to the external circumstances in which we find ourselves. You know, if you're born in the Middle Ages, you're the son of a peasant farmer, hey, you're going to be a peasant farmer, you're going to grow up, you're going to live, 
die in the town where you were born. Mm -hmm. You're going to be baptized, married, and buried in the same church. The question of your identity is is a ridiculous one. You, right. you are who you are. Right. It's only as external markers of identity, institutions, et cetera, et cetera, over the last hundred years or so have, have kind of gone into meltdown that we might say identity has emerged because it's emerged as a problem. You know, who mm -hmm. am I becomes a big question in a world of, of flux. But I would say even in our world of flux, identity is not that hard a concept. Mm -hmm. How do you conceive of yourself? Yeah. Now, somebody might say, oh, yeah, but we, we have numerous identities. Yeah. Mm -hmm, right. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an Englishman. In America, I'm British because you guys don't understand the important <laughs> ethnic distinctions. That's right. Um, you know, you kind of, well, I won't go into that. I was going <laughs> to indulge in some critical British theory there um, about how we're treated over here. But I, I'm, I'm English. I'm British. I'm an employee. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a, you know, I'm a, I'm a son. There's a hierarchy of identities yeah. as well. I've changed my employment. Several times I work at Grove City College now, used to work at Westminster Assembly, uh, Westminster Assembly, <laughs> used to work at Westminster Seminary. Before that, I was at British universities. You know, I, I've changed my employer because my, my identity that I draw from my employment is not as powerful, important, or as strong as that which I draw from being married. I've only been married once. So I, I have numerous identities, right. but it ain't that difficult. <laughs> it ain't that difficult to talk about my identity. My worry is when we get into this, the LGBTQ stuff, the people telling you that the question of identity is complicated, and let me indulge in some critical theory here. Sure. The people telling you that identity is a complicated concept are people who have a vested interest in making that concept mm. complicated. Yeah. Uh, one can't speculate about motives, but the most obvious read of what appears to be uh, Tim Keller's flip-flop on the mm -hmm. usefulness of identity is, well, a critical theorist might say, you know, identity is no longer useful for him for the agenda that he's now pursuing. Yeah. So he's flip-flopped on it, hoping that nobody will notice. And I think that's what goes on with this, this complicating of identity. Then, of course, we move to the notion of sexual identity. And the question yeah. is, identifying ourselves in terms of the direction of our sexual desires. Now, I've been told by one of the revoice people, oh, we, we're not doing that. We, we don't. I, I must say, you use the word gay. Yeah. Gay has been coined and exists for one primary purpose in the wider culture, and that's to identify with a certain direction of sexual desire. Right. If, as a Christian, you're using that word in a fundamentally different way, then you are operating in a very confusing way for your Christian brothers and sisters, and you shouldn't do it. Yeah. If you are using it in the same way as the wider culture uses it, then you shouldn't do it either because mm -hmm. no Christian should identify themselves relative to their sexual orientation. Right. It's interesting in the, um, in the PCA study committee report, um, their statement number 10 is on language. And this is an interesting statement because it goes right to what you just said. They write this. We affirm that those in our churches would be wise to avoid the term, quote, gay Christian. Although the term gay may refer to more than being attracted to persons of the same sex, the term does not communicate less than that. No. For many people in our culture, to self-identify as gay suggests one suggests that one is, is in homosexual practice. At the very least, the term normally communicates the presence and approval 
of same-sex sexual attraction as morally neutral or morally praiseworthy, even if the term gay for some Christians simply means same-sex attraction, it is still inappropriate to juxtapose this sinful desire or any other sinful desire as an identity marker alongside our identity as new creations in Christ. That's an excellent statement. Yep. And Tim Keller signed off on that. He helped write it. That's a a great statement. He was a member of the committee that produced this. Let me read this statement, statement number nine on identity. Listen to this. We affirm, now keep in mind, Reverend Keller just tweeted out a matter of days ago that, that we should not approve of overtures 23 and 37 because the term identity is too opaque for us to really understand. He helped. He was on the committee that wrote this statement on the term identity quote. We affirm that the believer's most important identity is found in Christ. Christians ought to understand themselves, define themselves and describe themselves in light of their union with Christ and their identity as regenerate, justified, holy children of God. To juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires alongside the term Christian is inconsistent with biblical language and undermines the spiritual reality that we are new creations in Christ. Now, again, if you help to write that statement and then months later uh, say, you know what, the word identity, um, those overtures aren't helpful because they use the word identity and identity is just too opaque. We can't have a meaningful discussion about that. We need a major study before we do, yeah. we do that. Yeah, you can't, you, you can't basically establish identity as one of the key terms of the debate and then turn around and say, hey, we can't use that as one of the key terms of the debate. That's, that's not an option. That's right. not an option. Yeah. And what was interesting is when the, um, the study committee was, report was, was released, and you and I had Kevin DeYoung on the program, it's been a year ago or more. Um, when it was released and we had him on an interview to, about it and because he, he was on the committee that helped produce it. it was, it's very good. And what was interesting is when that document was released and it was, and everybody knew the reason why the committee was formed in the first place was because of the controversy surrounding revoice. And that's why they delve into issues like identity, language, et cetera, desire, concupiscence, et cetera. But what was interesting is that when that study committee report was released, it was hailed across the spectrum of the PCA as being excellent, a place where we're going to be able to have unity, um, our national partnership brothers um, who've become more famous recently because of the release of a bunch of emails. But, you know, they were hailing, oh, this is great. We agree with this study committee report. And a lot of us thought that was odd because the study committee report is in direct conflict with Revoice, direct conflict with the affirmations of those who are um, supportive of revoice. Um, but what happened was then is the way I describe overtures 23 and 37 is they're basically a way to help make constitutional the study committee's report on identity. Um, and it seemed like the study committee report was great as long as it just remained a study committee report. And for those folks that aren't aware of our polity in the PCA, a study committee report has no constitutional weight whatsoever. Pious In other words, advice. It's, it's pious, pious advice. advice. Very helpful, but yep. pious advice. Yep. But it, it you cannot be disciplined if you disagree with a study committee report. Any you can you can tear it up and throw it away and there's nothing, you know. And so 
But as soon as some constitutional weight was added to some of the presuppositions and, well, full-on statements of the study committee report, suddenly at GA, we had men standing up and saying, we shouldn't be using the language of identity. And this started to happen from the floor of General Assembly on some of the floor speeches, is that the language of, and, and this is what I want to ask you about, the language of identity and the concept of identity is extra biblical. And we don't want to start adding language and concepts to the Bible that aren't in the Bible. Well, that's a, there's, I mean, one of the first things I do in my Doctrine of God class at Grove City College is make the point that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the right. Bible. Yeah, right. the, the word's not there, but the concept is. Right. And, and I think one would want to, to question at this point, well, the word's not there in the Bible, but I think we can see the concept is there. Mm -hmm. For example, in the patronymics of the Old Testament, uh, you know, Jehu, son of Nimshi. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Old Testament, Old Testament world, a big part of Jehu's identity, a big part of anybody's identity was their father. We see that in, in Russian as well, where you keep the patronymics. Or in Iceland, where surnames are always patronymics of some kind. Uh, we see it also in geographical location. You know, Elisha, we're not told about who his father is, but we know he comes from Tishbe, Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite. So I think that the, the idea that identity is not a concept in the Bible is, is nonsense. The, the concept is they may not use the word. Now, certainly it's the case to say that the Bible doesn't use sexual desire as a marker of identity. That's really, a, it emerges in the 19th century and it gets supercharged by, by Freud, essentially. But the idea of our sexual desires as providing our identity, you know, we don't have Jehu, the straight son of Nimshi. You just have Jehu, son of Nimshi. Right. Um, Jehu probably engaged in sexual activity, but it was an activity. It was not mm. an identity. It was not an identity marker. We now live in a world where sexual desire is an identity mm. marker. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to criticize or to offer a critique of that in yeah. light of biblical teaching. Say, okay, is this a legitimate expansion or application of the kind of identities that the Bible uh, legitimates? Mm. And, and that's where I think the question has to be asked. I mean, yeah. somebody might tell me, well, there's no such thing as a nation state in the Bible. We identify as an American or a British person. Yeah. Uh, you know, so is identifying as gay not simply as morally neutral as identifying as British or American? I, I would say no at that <laughs> point because right. the term gay has specific connotations. That's right moral connotations That's that right. the Bible does speak to mm -hmm. in a way that belonging to a nation doesn't. Now, maybe being some kind of fanatical fascist nationalist, I think the Bible would speak right. to that. Right. But being proud of one's country is, is no different to being in love with one's wife in, in, yeah. on one level. It's a perfectly legitimate thing. So yeah. I would Saul say of Tarsus, uh, yeah. Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that, that, I, I would say that's not substantively different yeah. from saying Carl of Great Britain. No. Uh, it's, and, and I think to play those sort of games, it's just a dodge. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, we have to address these dodges and it grants these dodges a, an intellectual credibility that actually I don't think they warrant on the right. whole. This is and a that, game that's being played. Right. And that's a part of my frustration here, because it seems to me and it's absolutely true that the way that we, as you pointed out earlier, that the way that humans think about their identity changes and morphs over time as cultures change, um, as, as people change, you know, the, the world is a very different place today. And so 
we, we have different categories in which we think about ourselves. But anytime the Bible, if thinking about the Bible's use of the term and, or, or the, the concept of identity, anytime the Bible says something substantively about someone, it's trading in the, the concept of identity. As you pointed out, whether we're saying Saul of Tarsus or whether we're saying you're a new creation in Christ, we're dealing at least in part with the concept of identity. And, yeah. and the New Testament goes further. The New Testament not only tells us who we are in Christ with, with a broad range of um, uh, descriptions, but also tells us who we are no longer. Um, if you want to give them more specific about identity, you know, you're not these things anymore. Now you're these things. You're not this anymore. You're now this. If, if you can't say that that's an identity concept, then I, I, I don't understand the debate at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, I think if you switch the word identity for selfhood, the problem mm -hmm. vanishes. Every human right. being from the beginning of time has had a sense of selfhood. Right. Who do they think they are and how do they imagine their place in the world to be? How do they conceptualize the good life? What do they think is the purpose of being a human being? How do they understand flourishing? Yeah. When you ask those questions and you look at the answers, that takes you to how that person conceptualizes what we would now call their identity. Yeah. It's not yeah. a new thing. And, and we would, and, and I would, I would argue that part of that, again, this, this idea of, of understanding of the self is, is part of what makes humanity unique. My dog doesn't spend time contemplating his dogness, but, but humans spend time considering their humanity, yeah. who they are and what they're about and what is their direction and, and end in life. These are, these are issues that are throughout the scriptures and it's perfectly appropriate to apply the term identity to that category of thoughts. And so I'm, it is a very frustrating thing now for many of us in the PCA to now see those overtures being attacked on the basis that they use identity, you know, identity, yeah. we can't really understand what it means. And besides it's, it's an extra biblical concept to begin with. I, you know, as, as important as it is for us to avoid speculating on um, motives, it's hard for me to see that as anything else than something that's not entirely, um, there's not a lot of candor yeah. being exercised yeah. at that point, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, my experience of, uh, as we're sort of coming to a close here, I'd say my, my experience of church life and of Christianity in general has been that by and large, people will find a dozen righteous reasons not to do the right thing. <laughs> Christians are adept at that. They will find tiny specks of, uh, of imperfection in something that will make them feel good about not having to take a stand, mm -hmm. about not doing the right thing. And I think we could be facing uh, yeah. an example here. Uh, I'm sure that there are an awful lot of people in the middle ground in the PCA mm -hmm who may be relieved if they don't have to take a tough stand on this. Right. And this confusion that's being sown will, will be a boon to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sad because yeah. the history of the church is, well, that's how things go bad. Good people not doing the right thing for a dozen righteous reasons. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, we hope that uh, in contrast to the people we've been talking about, uh, what we've said today, even if you disagree with it, has yet been clear. Uh, <laughs> we do not trade in obfuscation. Uh, if you don't like us, you know why you don't like us. And that's <laughs> what we like. But anyway, uh, thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you have a chance 
both to donate in order to keep us on the air, spreading clarity and hatred amidst all of the confusion and love that we find around us. And you can also enter for a chance to win a giveaway book uh, this uh, week, which is Kevin DeYoung's uh, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? It's a few years old now, but it really does offer what I think is a clear statement of the biblical position on homosexuality, which frankly is not that difficult. So please enter for a chance to win that book. If you don't win it, buy a copy, read it, uh, absorb what it has to say. In the meantime, all that remains is to thank you for joining us today. So we look forward to being with you next time. Stay safe and stay warm. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. That's all, folks. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word, upholding biblical doctrine, sharing the gospel, and equipping Christians with trustworthy Bible teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it's your generous gifts that enable this good work. As we approach the year's end, we need your help to raise the funds necessary to finish the year strong and reach even more people in the year ahead. So please join us and help underwrite this encouraging Bible teaching ministry. Visit AllianceNet.org slash donate to make a donation online. That's AllianceNet.org slash donate or call 1-800-488-1888.